Welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Christine. So today we are finally, finally having the episode about your dissertation. Yeah, I am currently holding in my hands a book, a physical hardcover book that I wrote. And it is an academic work, but in this episode and the next episode, we are going to be giving a more accessible summary of my dissertation topic, which by the time we release this episode should be available online for you to read as well if you want to read the entire academic work. Well, I think we were talking about this being a two-parter so that we had time to go through the things and, and the second episode will be about the actual release of that and it'll at least be available then but it'll it should probably be available in either case i mean we could put up the pdf of it in either case but yeah we the second episode will also talk a little bit about getting out the source code and stuff like that um yeah but for right now let's just hop into it so what what is the name of your dissertation looking at the spine of this book it is Women and Woolworking in the Roman Empire, which is a pretty drab title, but I was a bit busy writing the whole dissertation. <laughs> well, why don't you expand on what the actual ideas within the dissertation are? So when I started researching it, the idea was to look at the real and perceived roles that women played in textile production in the Roman Empire. And the reason that I chose the Roman Empire, one, is because I think it's a really interesting time to look at women's roles because they get some more legal freedoms in that period than women had in other periods of ancient history. But also because the topic of women and textile production in the ancient world is a very well-loved and well-researched field, but most of the time that research is looking at ancient Greece or other areas of the BC side of ancient history, and a lot of them stop either in the Roman Republic or before they get to the Romans at all, and a lot of the discourse about textiles in the Roman Empire is about this larger textile industry. So those discussions focus more on the male side of textile production. Yeah. So let me let me see if I can rephrase that just to see if I, I, I process it. The general argument that's made then is if this is primarily a male industry, like with industry in air quotes, that's kind of assuming since it's an industry, women weren't really involved, right? Which is the the contrast is because we've got the word industry associated with it that like women are just not part of the picture when it comes to textiles in ancient Rome. Is that about is that about the right? Yeah, and when you're looking at industries, you're looking at long distance trade routes and at commercial endeavors and merchant endeavors and stuff like that. So if you're looking at an industry, usually you're looking at the people towards the top of that industry, as opposed to the people at the bottom doing the labor. 
But from my read on, well, literally reading your dissertation is, is that you kind of perceive it more as being a very gendered sandwich of production, right? So do you want to, do you want to kind of give us the layers of the sandwich? Yeah. So there's a lot of stages of textile production. And I mean, you start with raising sheep. And then eventually you have to shear those sheep. We have a whole episode. Well, actually, it's not a whole episode, but we have a section of another episode that we'll link in the show notes that goes through the whole process. But if we're just talking about the gendering of the roles, then based on the best evidence we have, the raising and shearing of the sheep probably would have been done by men and slaves or servants. And then... Cleaning and processing and spinning the wool would have been done by women, and that could have been women and servants and slaves as well. Weaving was done by both men and women, and we see that played out in slightly different ways in the inscriptions that we have. And then after that, you've got dyeing and fulling and all of the commercial aspects like shipping and trading and selling. So I think, let me see if I can understand. Oh, and you're saying that the, the, the there's no arguments that the commercial aspect in terms of the shipping and kind of mer- mercantile side of things, nobody's debating that that's a particularly male-driven de- development, right? Yeah, there are a couple of standouts where we have women doing those roles, but predominantly the evidence we have suggests that those were male roles. So it's the general assumption in kind of, I guess, an academic field at large that is it just a lack of attention to that middle center, part of the sandwich of the kind of processing side of things? Or do you think that there's an assumption that people were doing those roles, but we believe that they were men because this is an industry? Do you think that, which is version of that? Or is it both? I think it's both. I think part of it is us as scholars interpreting the biases of the culture that we're studying. Mm-hmm. So when you have a large scale international shipping trade system, which the textile industry in the Roman Empire was in a lot of ways, you can see that in a paper trail in some things. So a lot of it is in funerary inscriptions of people's job titles. So you've got merchants and textile dealers and stuff like that that are being listed. And you end up with more funerary inscriptions for people at the top than the people at the bottom. Part of that is that the labor stages just weren't as prestigious and therefore they might not have been commemorated. Part of that is because a lot of that labor was probably done by slaves. Both male and female slaves, Yeah, both male and female slaves. And the levels of commemoration for slaves are murky. I mean, there obviously are some examples that I can talk about later. But if I remember correctly from reading your dissertation, there's this idea in the dissertation from kind of the mainstream literature, which is that there are these production centers, which is where the processing happened. And the general, the general stances being pushed is, and these were staffed by men. Is Mm -hmm. that, is that right? Yes. Either that or there were these, there were these production centers and we're not going to talk about the gendered division of labor. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we're we're kind of 
Um, it's not surprising if you've listened to some of our previous episodes that, you know, we're a, a good portion of this conversation here is trying to undo the damage of writing out women from kind of the middle of uh, this conversation. But I think one of the interesting things is, is if you do listen to that previous episode where we go from from sheep to sweater, one of the parts that I remember you saying in there was dying, which I seem to remember you saying could happen at any stage. So is that yep. why you didn't list it in the sandwich? I did list it in the sandwich. I just listed it towards the end for simplicity's sake. But yeah, dying could be done in the wool. It could be done after you've spun the thread. It can be done after you have woven the cloth and it can be redone after you've worn the garment for half a decade and it's starting to fade. I'm going to repeat my joke from last time, but you you generally don't want to dye the sheep in the wool. No, typically you don't want to dye the sheep. They don't like it. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Also, seriously, ancient dyeing materials are caustic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we don't want to, we don't want to burn our sheep either. No. So... A dissertation is a giant pile of words, right? And it's helpful to have a map, right? To know where we're going to go. So could you give us kind of a landscape of what the structure of your dissertation is? Yeah, so my dissertation is structured differently than a lot of other dissertations. Instead of just having fairly equally length chapters that dove into different topics, I have a total of eight chapters, if you include the introduction and the conclusion. And then the six other chapters, there are three short case study chapters that introduce the textile evidence from the sites of Caranus, Trier, and Ephesus. And then there are three longer synthesis chapters that compare the data from those three sites and then also include information and evidence from elsewhere in the Roman Empire to give a more rounded look. The case studies are so that I was able to focus, and then the synthesis chapters tie it all together. And what what were the three topics of the synthesis chapters? One on domestic production of textiles, one on commercial production of textiles, and one on the performative aspects of textile production and women in the ancient Roman Empire. So the way that those chapters are set up, obviously I do a clear distinction of domestic production of textiles and commercial production of textiles, which is the way that they're often written about in the secondary sources, so in scholarship about Roman textiles. However, one of the major conclusions of my dissertation, the more that I looked at these things, the more that I realized that those distinctions were probably modern distinctions that we are trying to impose on them. And in the Roman system, those distinctions probably would have been much more blurred. So I looked at it more from the approach of a cottage industry, where it was more likely that you still had women taking part in this larger textile industry, but that was because they were doing the spinning and maybe some of the weaving at home and then sold it piecemeal or were paid piecemeal to merchants who then distributed it and finished the Yeah, so the, the, the definition of cottage industry in general is where you do have some sort of wider industrial network of selling and so on and so forth, but 
there are domestic sites, you know, basically people's at people's homes and like, you know, within small villages where people end up doing some level of production and end up in, and so these aren't separate things. That's the basic. That's well, and the it's basic. not necessarily in small villages either. You have cottage industries in cities as well. Sure, sure, that's true. But the basic argument is that basically, there it doesn't. It's not fair to call these strongly distinct things. Exactly. Right? Is yeah. that they tie in and kind of feed into each other? Yeah. So one of the things I thought was interesting about your dissertation, I noticed that there was kind of a mirror between the three case studies and kind of the three synthesis ideas in there. So do you, do you want to just give us an idea of what Karanis, Trier, and Ephesus each individually kind of added to the story? Yeah, and that actually wasn't intentional. When I was picking my three case study sites, I chose sites that had evidence from multiple of those larger synthesis ideas in there at each site. But the major type of evidence from each site just happened to break down into those three. So for Karanis, there was a really great wealth of domestic evidence. Karanis was a Roman settlement in Egypt, and it was a small rural site. And the way that the site was used after it was buried destroyed a lot of the public spaces in the town Mm -hmm. because there's this practice where farmers could go and dig up the nutrient-rich soil from the site and then use that for fertilizer, basically, but they were digging right in the main public areas of town, so that disturbed the archaeological evidence there. Mm -hmm. But what that left, archaeologically, was really well-preserved domestic sites so all of the houses are really well preserved from Karanis. and one of the things that i remember about this area is that it's very arid and it turns out that's a feature here right well it's a feature for us it wasn't a feature for the people who inhabited Karanis because the site was built in the fayum which was a desert and then they put in irrigation systems in there and waterworks so that this desert area was inhabitable. And then the reason that the city was abandoned was eventually because those waterworks went into disrepair and the site became more and more of a desert again. And because of this desertification... There's an insufficient amount of water for what people need every day, basically. So... That means that since the site was abandoned, it's not like a snapshot of a moment in time. You don't have like cereal bowls on the table or things just as they would have been when people were living there. But the dry, arid conditions preserve a lot of things that don't survive really anywhere else in the Roman Empire. Because they basically just don't rot. Yeah, so this includes a lot of textiles themselves, which are extremely rare if you're studying ancient textiles. It also includes things like wooden textile tools, so like the shafts of spindles, or wooden spindle whorls, or pieces of a loom, although we do not have any actual looms from Karanis, probably because when they abandoned the site, they took them with them. The other major piece of evidence that we had from Karanis is written evidence. So 
Papyrus also survives at that site. So we have things like labor contracts and receipts and letters that also give us a lot of insight into the textile economy or the demand for textiles or the labor that was done. Okay. And what about Trier? What does Trier give us? The main type of evidence that we have for that site is for the commercial aspect of the textile industry. So this site had a long history before it was a Roman colony. So there was a local population and then there were various Greek settlements and then there was a Roman settlement and that site has continued to be inhabited since that time, which means that Archaeological evidence is a little bit difficult to find because it's hard to just do a full excavation of the Roman site when there is a modern city sitting on top of it because, you know, people's lives are there and continue to be there. So we don't have a lot of domestic evidence. We have some of the, well, we have a lot of the public buildings that survive because those remained extant and a lot of them were reused. And then the main piece of textile evidence we have is actually just outside of Trier. And it's known as the Egal Monument, which is a funerary monument to the Secundini family. And the Secundini family were probably textile merchants. And the iconography on this shows genre scenes of various textile industry-related things. So there's the presentation of completed textiles, there's inspection of completed textiles, there's paying laborers, there's shipping the textiles on the Mosul River. So it shows a lot of those kind of later stages of the process. The glaring absence on that monument is any stage of production. Now there's one genre scene on the monument that has been interpreted as, well, maybe it was a scene of the production, but it is also the most damaged side of the monument, and it is really difficult to tell. And then also at Trier, we have evidence of diplomatic positions that indicated textile positions. So these were procurator positions, which were just kind of bureaucrats in charge of. And one of them was in charge of the Gynaikium, which was probably theoretically a textile warehouse, although we have very little evidence of what this actually was, and we have no archaeological evidence of where it was. And then there was another one that was the diplomat in charge of basically gold or silver embroidered textiles. So finally, there's Ephesus. So what's Ephesus' main contribution in terms of the synthesis type things? Ephesus's main contribution is in these kind of performative aspects of textile production. So Ephesus, like Trier, was a city that had been long inhabited before the Roman colony and continued to be continuously inhabited through modern day. So again, there is no excavation of like the entire 
Roman city because that's impossible in a modern city. But before it was a Roman site, it was a Greek site. And there is the Artemision, which is a very large pilgrimage temple to the goddess Artemis in Ephesus. So it was a large religious center before it was a Roman colony, and then it continued to have that association in the Roman period. And then the very interesting thing for textile production in the Roman period at Ephesus are these very fancy bone distaffs. And a distaff is a tool that you wrap your unspun wool on while you're spinning it so that it doesn't get tangled. And theoretically, that sounds like a very utilitarian tool, right? But these distaffs from Ephesus have ornately carved patterns in them. Some of them have statuettes. And that leads to the question of why you have these very fancy tools. Is and it, Is it kind of like having like a fancy vase or fancy like like a cut glass bowl that you're like no, never put any food in there or something like that like they yeah so it could be that these were just ornamental and symbolic of the woman of the house doing textile work even though they weren't actually in use it could have been they could have been used for certain ceremonial things and we'll talk about that more when we get to the performative chapter but they very clearly weren't used on a daily basis for textile production. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the evidence we have for those comes specifically from two terrace houses, which were kind of multifamily units. And the reason that we have evidence and good excavation records for those is because they were destroyed in a fire in antiquity. Archaeologists like a good destruction layer because it leaves a lot of good information extant for us to uncover mm -hmm. okay so the domestic production of textiles section that's your first synthesis section mm -hmm. what's kind of the thrust of this section as in terms of its ideas so there is a very ancient and by ancient in this case i mean predating the roman empire even idea that wool work is women's work and the foundational secondary source on this is going to be Elizabeth Barber's women's work that covers that distinction. Not not just woolworking, textile production in general, right? Textile like production in general. And so that predates it. In the Greek world, you have images of textile production on vases, and textile production is used as a shorthand to indicate that it, this scene was taking place in a woman's space and you had very clear gendered divisions within greek households as well and that was reflected partially by textile production and where it could and did occur in the roman empire and even in the roman republic you don't have very many images of textile production happening which is i know not what you expected me to say since this is an art history dissertation but you do still have the continuation of this tradition or the appropriation of this tradition, depending on how you want to view the relationship between Greek and Roman cultures. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually just going to kind of go through the different subsections you have in these chapters, because I have a feeling if I just 
read them out loud, you'll be able to kind of riff on them. So Augustan Propaganda and the Domestic Production of, uh, of Textile. So Augustan Propaganda, can you tell me who Augustus is? So we already covered this in another episode, so I'm not going to go very deep into it. But Augustus was the first emperor of Rome, and in setting himself up as the emperor, he was trying to distinguish first that he was the ruler and not just one of the senators or, you know, part of the social structure of the republic, and two, that he was not a king because the Romans had kings before. Ooh, wait, why are the Romans so upset about kings? Is this, is this a core part of their story? It is part of the founding myth of the Roman Republic that back in this kind of mythical historical period, there were kings and they were despotic kings who abused their power. And one of these pieces of Augustan propaganda is Augustan retellings of the story of Lucretia, which if you want to read more about it, we will link to the actual myths in the show notes. And you can read the entire story, but the idea is at the center of the story, there was a virtuous housewife who was busy and industrious working with wool, and that led a despotic prince to do some horrible things, which prompted a revolution, basically. Basically because he was like, this is so hot that this woman is doing textile work at home that he does those horrible things and um but that dude was a being a prince basically that led to the we're not having kings anymore is that right yes and that is only one of the examples of horrible things the despotic kings and princes did but it was was a a, catalyst it was a so it's a key story and so how is but if anything if you're setting up yourself up as the first emperor, it seems like a bad idea to tell this story because you're like, hey, look out, there's these powerful people and look what they do. And now I'm the emperor, right? Like, so how how did Augustus say, but I'm not like that? Um, how did Augustus use the mythology of the virtuous housewife to set himself apart? Well, one of the things that they needed to do in the empire was replenish the population of aristocrats because they had just had a civil war where they spent a long time killing each other. So one of the things that Augustus did was institute this series of moral reforms. And part of this series of moral reforms was this kind of nostalgic idea of going back to a simpler time in the past where we had virtuous women who did textile production and all of these other things. And then this also led to increased rights for women who had lots of babies. So basically, we need more kids. The, the right kind of kids. The right, the right, air quotes, right kind. Yeah, which we has some interesting parallels to some things that yes, some... It's, yes, it's a, it's a terrible thing to get into. But in order to get the right kinds, um, we need women to raise lots and lots of these kids. And so we're going to basically sweeten the deal by giving women some rights, only women within these particular kinds of families. Yeah, patrician women. But also they are married, but they also have to kind of abide by these kind of classic conservative ideas while being given more rights of what women should be like, especially based off of these kinds of old stories. And so therefore, Augustus can be like, hey, look, I'm fully aware of how bad kings are. 
Mm -hmm. Um, I need these other things to happen and look at how I'm setting myself apart and tapping into that nostalgic factor. So that's, that's basically it. Yeah. Okay. And so what about this epitaphs to virtuous housewives? What does that mean? So we have a handful of epitaphs. So basically funerary inscriptions to deceased women that follow a certain pattern. And when I say a handful, I mean, we have enough to make it interesting to my dissertation but not enough to be statistically significant if we were to do like an analysis of all of the types of epitaph constructions in the Roman Empire. And these epitaphs have a tendency to follow a structure that involves identifying the woman, usually a mother or a wife, and then listing a series of virtues, among which textile production was one of them. So basically, here lies whatever her name is, let's call it mm-hmm. Claudia, Claudia something. Um, Ooh, that's, um, that's an interesting one to talk about. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, did I actually bring up one of the names? You brought it's... up the one that's the most famous one, but is also a forgery. Okay. All right. Well, let me use the name Claudia. That was unintentional. Um, I was just trying to think of a Roman name, so I used Claudia. Uh, uh, and Claudia is the Roman name that people think of because okay. of this epitaph, Okay. All right. Partially. Well, you'll, you'll get to that for a moment. So it's basically like, here lies Claudia, not the specific Claudia. Uh, here lies Claudia. She was a good woman. She did all these things that we think are good for women to do, amongst which was uh, she spun and she wove and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I really want to just read this one after you did that Please. because it's kind of amusing. Please. Okay. So what's the epitaph to Claudia, which is a forgery? Stranger, my message is short. Stand and read it through. Here is the unlovely tomb of a lovely woman. Her parents named her Claudia. She loved her husband with all her heart. She bore two sons. Of these, she leaves one above ground, but one has already been laid within the earth. She was charming in conversation and gentle in manner. She kept the house and she spun wool. That is all there is to say. Go now. So so Chris basically just reconstructed this con- this thing okay so this is the- but this is the general pattern right Which this is-, is the general pattern and the epitaph to claudia is one of the most famous ones of these but more recently it has been identified based off of a lot of very significant but probably very boring to our audience language issues one of which is that it says that her parents named her claudia but the way that roman naming worked basically if you were a girl and your father's name was Claudius, then you were named Claudia. Okay, cool. Let's summarize why this is important, mm-hmm. right, to, your, to the thrust of your dissertation. What we do know, then, is that when talking about the things that women should do, what's expected of them, what's kind of like the way that women are talked about, even though the general idea is, well, in Rome, you know, textiles, women basically dropped out of the whole textiles thing. We know from a storied perspective, that's not true. Yes. Okay. For, so from a narrative perspective, women and textiles remains important in ancient Rome. Yes. Okay. The next subsection is social hierarchy and the division of domestic labor. What does that mean? So that is the question of who is doing the work. So the people who are getting these kind of sensationalized epitaphs where wool working is a character trait those are typically the matrona right the women of the household who are running the show but then there's the question of would they actually be the ones doing 
the labor and in those are they doing the labor or getting the credit exactly and in the two versions of the story of lucretia that were written in the augustan period one of them says that she's actually spinning herself and the other one says that she's supervising her servants who are spinning so this is kind of like stereotype you'd see in a movie of modern society where um one rich old couple comes over to another rich old couple's house and sits down for dinner and the person whose house it is who's a host is bragging about their famous meal and then everybody eats it and compliments the host but it's it's not the host who's actually done the labor but the host gets a credit is that roughly the idea yeah in in the scenario you're you're weaving here it would be if there was a housekeeper or a chef or something who cooked the the food but it was the lady of the house who got got the credit credit, for it so it's equivalent but with textiles instead yeah and then the other dynamic of this is it's very likely that for spinning, at least, most of the labor was done by women, even if those women were slaves. But at the level of labor that we're talking about, it's entirely possible that there were male slaves doing this as well, because it depends on how many servants you have in your household, right? If you've only got one servant, and it's basically a maid-of-all-work kind of situation and that servant happens to be a man, then he's probably going to do some of the spinning. If you've got 50 servants to the extent that each of them have distinct jobs, then likely the servants that are doing spinning are going to be women. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next section is archaeological evidence of domestic production of textiles. So, in other words, what physical proof do we have that this was actually happening in the home? And the answer is a lot. We have a lot of evidence from Roman houses all over the empire of textile tools that were found in houses. And typically in most Roman sites, the evidence we have for textile production in the home are either spindle whorls. So that's the either stone or glass or sometimes wood round piece that gives the spindle centrifugal force to actually spin the thread and the reason we only have whorls is because those could be made out of as i said ceramic or glass or stone and those things are non-perishable so the actual shaft the stick in the middle would probably for most sites in the roman empire rot away but you still have those non-perishable parts so we still have the little wheel things that show that there was spinning happening yes But it's not a wheel. That's a distinction that we should make. Because in the Roman Empire, we didn't have spinning wheels yet. That didn't come. Sorry, sorry. I just meant the the shape. The shape the You have the little circle. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then for weaving, typically the evidence we have are loom weights, which are again, well, mostly for loom weights, they're ceramic, but they could be made out of other materials. Sometimes they're. They're made out of metal. Sometimes they're in the shape of spools. They can, they can, they have a bunch of different shapes, but these would be the weights that you put at the bottom of your warp threads on a warp weighted loom. So basically they're holding the, the, they're holding the thread straight mm-hmm. so you can do the weaving. Yeah. They're giving you the tension in your warp threads and the rest of the loom is perishable. It's okay. made out of wood. So we have archaeological evidence of this stuff. And also some of the, most of it looks very practical. A few of them 
maybe are possibly mm-hmm. decorative. Yeah, but... sometimes you've got spindle whorls that have painting or geometric uh, in- carving on them or something like that. But but, but there seems, seems to be a large number of these, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of the households seem like they have them in them, right? Yeah, a lot of households seem to have them in them. And we don't necessarily always have good information on them because they are so common that a lot of excavators didn't bother keeping them Mm -hmm. because unlike ceramics you can't really use them to date things because loom weights and spindle whorls stayed pretty static in form and decoration for long periods of time so you can't say ah this dates this specific context to the third century sure so basically we do have an idea that a lot of houses did have these Mm -hmm. so probably much more then would be justifiable to say, well, we just we were just keeping these around for funsies, basically. Sometimes, but it's also hard to tell because it depends on how many people you have in a household. There's often evidence of textile tools in domestic contexts, and there are often evidence of more tools than would be necessary just to provide for the household's ah, use. Ah, so this is getting into the mixed cottage industry thing. We know that people had not just a decorative amount of these loom weights and spindle whorls around, right? Mm-hmm. So you could jump from there to say, um, the first thing that somebody might say is, well, nobody was even actually bothering to spin at all because it was all completely commercially outsourced. That's clearly not true because there's there's enough of this stuff at home. Mm-hmm. So the next thing you could say is, well, that's just, you know, that's for the local household only, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's only for spinning here. But what you're saying is, is like, well... It looks like there might be more here than would be for if you were just spinning Mm -hmm. for your own home supply or weaving for your own home supply. Is that right? And there's also probably some survival bias there, too, because in the case of looms, we talked about the warp weighted loom leaving the weights behind. But there's another type of loom that was theoretically common in the Roman Empire, but archaeologically it does not survive at all because it was basically a very large frame loom, which meant that it was made out of wood and the entire thing would have rotted and decayed. So it doesn't leave any archaeological trace. And at Caranus, for example, we have a lot of evidence of wooden tools that doesn't survive elsewhere. So we've got like wooden weaving combs and those wooden spindle whorls that exist there. There are by a significant factor, more wooden spindle whorls than there are spindle whorls of other types, which indicates that it might have also been at other sites that there were more wooden spindle whorls, they just don't survive. So let me try to wrap up this section of the domestic production textiles. See if I understood all this stuff you said, and you tell me if I get it right or wrong. Mm -hmm. So we know... That women being involved in textile production is an important part of the narrative of women and what's considered important for women to do, both Mm -hmm. in terms of the founding myths, also in terms of the way that women are remembered when they die. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, we know that culturally, the associations with women and woolworking, it remains strong. We also know that it's not necessarily the case also that in a household that has servants, it might also be the head female servant is getting the credit, but might not actually be the one doing all the hard work. Or more likely, 
the wife, the matron of the household, is getting the credit Sorry, for that's supervising. What I, that's what I meant. That. And you did have you did have supervising servants too. There yeah, yeah, there yeah. is a t- a term but, specifically for a servant who supervises okay. textile work. But good, I got it right. That's the, the key part. Then, as in terms of the archaeological evidence, we know that there actually were the right tools to be able to build these things in the home. Mm-hmm. Maybe, probably, even more than what was necessary to then to just fulfill a home's own local needs. So what that mm-hmm. seems to indicate is. No, women were not just out of the picture as in terms of women being involved in textile production in ancient Rome. And we've got strong evidence that stuff was definitely happening here. So the tie-in then seems to be jumping to the next chapter, the commercial production of textiles. Do you want to re-enter the introduction and framing and the whole idea of the cottage industry for this section? Yeah, so a lot of scholars have spent time looking for centralized commercial production centers for textiles. And the thing is, we haven't really found them. We've found a few kind of outstanding cases where there are an extraordinary number of textile tools. And we've found things that are archaeologically identifiable, such as dye shops or fulleries, that clearly required specific architectural installations in order to meet their function. However, we really haven't found much evidence for centralized production centers for spinning and weaving. So if there's not the centralized production centers for all of those kind of middle of the sandwich type steps, I guess you're what you're what you're saying is is that it makes sense that for a large portion of it, at least, that it was likely was happening in the home mm-hmm. and that this was something that fed back in that could be sold. And my understanding is that also it's pretty well understood that spinning is one of those jobs that one of the reasons that we have that association with the name spinster is that spinning was like a job that was readily available for women in general if mm-hmm. you no matter what ended up happening in in your life right the historically up until the industrial revolution this was a job that women that had a certain level of gentility could do to make some money because it could be done within the home but not not even just women with like a large amount of gentility like you, oh no there were definitely women without gentility that were just working in textile production as well and there's a lot of ways that you can look at that. Great. And so this whole grounding for a cottage industry, then basically what you, I think what you're saying then is, therefore, it makes sense that this is this is where things were being produced, right? Like yeah. is at home. And I thought that was interesting. I'm going to open up the book. There's a section quoting from this, this paper that uh, olive production in the Roman economy the case for intensive growth in the Roman Empire. So there's a story about olive oil that seemed to be like an interesting example of how a different cottage industry kind of ended up existing. There is this distinction that scholars like to classify it either as this large-scale international industry or, contrary to that, it was people doing small-scale production for a local market. 
or just for themselves. Or just for themselves. Right. And so this paper about olive oil, it seemed interesting. Do you wanna do you wanna explain it or or should Yeah, so to to give a very brief description of this comparison, this is an example where you do have archaeologically evidenced materials where you have evidence that there were these farmers in a smaller region that had more olive presses than any household would need to meet the needs of the household. And, and not just in one region. It's that it's a pattern where yeah. over and over again in all of these regions, there was way more olive presses, both in the middle of town mm-hmm. than what the town would need, and also in people's individual farms than what the individual farm would need. And like, you know, like we got fancier equipment than what was necessary, right? Yeah, so more sophisticated and... Uh, and specific technology than you would need if you were just producing olive oil for your household consumption. And so one of the arguments that I thought was interesting here was the author was like, this dichotomy is not that helpful. In fact, people who are saying, you know, it was just either end of things are writing kind of the people who are, you know, in these households out of the story because they were smart and they knew they wanted in on being able to embedder their lives by being able to invest in better equipment and Mm -hmm. kind of make more to be able to benefit their own household economy by tying into this wider network, right? Mm -hmm. How does this end up becoming evidence for textile stuff? That's olive oil. It has nothing to do with textiles, right? Yeah. So it's one evidence that you have other cottage industries happening at the same time, which makes it more likely that you would have a cottage industry for this. And two, it kind of shows the model. So as far as evidence of commercial production of textiles goes, as I said, we really don't have evidence for these centralized commercial production centers for spinning and weaving. What we do have archaeological evidence for is fulleries and dye shops. And that's because for these fulleries and dye shops, you need very specific but also kind of difficult to fully classify installations, which involve certain types of tables with basins fit in for dyeing. And for falling, you have these kind of like shorter basins that are fit into stalls because the process of falling involved repeatedly stepping on things. So you have these kind of half walls so that you can hold onto the walls and just stomp on the wall. To- but, that, but that doesn't exclude... Especially since dying, we knew could appear in other, in in any stage of the process. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't seem to remove then your argument for the middle of the sandwich stuff, right? Yeah, that, that's basically what you're saying is there's actually not that that this is kind of an absence of evidence. Type well, thing. and for and for dying and fulling, these are not facilities that like everyone is going to have in their homes, mm-hmm. right? So. Even if people were just doing local production of textiles for their own house or for their own community, likely you would still have to have public or at least communal or commercially available facilities for dyeing and fulling because not everyone can have this specialized equipment in their house. Although they were connected to houses in... A lot of Roman industries, you had a kind of public storefront situation that was connected to a larger house that the proprietors would live in. 
Okay. Cool. That's the archaeological evidence then? What about mm-hmm. the ep- epigraphic evidence? The epigraphic evidence... And can you define epigraphic here again for us? So epigraphic meaning that these are inscriptions usually related to funerary contexts. And for commercial production, these appear in the form of job titles. And some of the wording is very similar to what we saw in those kind of formulaic virtuous housewife epitaphs earlier. But instead of saying that wool work was a virtue, they're saying that it was a job. And typically these are shorter form where you have the person's name and then a job title. So I'm not going to really read many of these off as examples. And I'm also not going to go into the different Latin terms for the job titles. But I do want to talk about one specific monument that's interesting, which is the Monument of the Statilii, which is a columbarium or kind of a monument where you put ashes in Rome. And it's for one family, but it reflects a broad range of textile jobs for the slaves and freedmen and servants within that family. So that includes eight spinners, four weavers, two of whom were men and two of whom were women, a textile supervisor, and then four tailors. And this is within one family. And granted, this is not like a static at one point in time, there were this many textile people at any given time. But that, that sounds like a family business right there. Yes. So since it's a family, there's the question of, is this just a family that's producing a whole lot of textiles for their very large family, which is unlikely? Or is it a family that is specifically employing enough people that they have these individual jobs so that they can produce enough textiles to sell into a larger cottage industry. Great. So administrative evidence for commercial production. What does that mean? Since we're looking now at kind of the more official jobs, there are a couple of places where you've got administrative things. So we already talked about Notitia Dignitatum, which was an administrative document listing kind of these civic bureaucratic appointments. And there are some jobs on there that are basically like the high level bureaucrats related to the textile industry. And we talked about that in Trier with the procurator of the Gnaikium and the procurator of the Barbicari, which is the silver and gold embroidered things. So we've got things like that. We also have graffiti that are related to elections. So such and such is a textile merchant and is either running for a public position or is supporting for someone who is running for a public position. And... These are going to be obviously skewed towards male job titles, right? Because women did not have the ability to vote or run for public office. And then you have some things that are inscriptions for public works. So, for example, in Pompeii, there's the building of Oimachia, who was a woman and a priestess, and she funded a building that was dedicated to Concordia Augustus and Pietas. And there's an inscription to Oimachia from the Fuller's Guild. 
So there's been some question, this is slightly reaching back to the archaeological evidence too, about whether or not this building was itself a fullery or some sort of warehouse where textile production was happening or a gathering space because we've got this inscription plus the inscription being from Fuller's. So this one's the one that was being dedicated by the woman who who is the the... building was built and dedicated by a woman but the fullers of pompeii wrote an inscription to the woman who donated the building like on a statue of her in the building so there's some question as to whether or not this public building was related to textile working and the reason that it's questionable whether or not it was a fullery is because they found some basins that had like waterproof basins, like you would find in a fullery or a dye shop in there. So wait, but, let, me, let me ask the question. But having such a space doesn't mean that it's actually women working in the space necessarily, exactly. right? Exactly. Even if it's a woman who paid for the space okay, and there's a fullery associated with it. What I was saying about the basins, though, is when they initially excavated this building, They found these waterproof basins inside the building and initially identified it as a fullery. But since it was lacking other aspects that usually are used in identifying fulleries, it was later concluded that those basins were probably there temporarily as part of repairs from the previous volcanic eruption in Pompeii. So that gives us an idea of kind of like the question of how identifiable these buildings are archaeologically. Mm -hmm. So one of the most interesting of the administrative evidence things has its own subsection under here, the Diocletian's Price Edict. Could you tell Mm -hmm. us about that? Yeah, so this document is kind of wild. It's a document that's from about 301 CE, and it established maximum prices for consumer goods, raw materials, labor, and shipping costs for a broad range of industries was, in response to inflation. It was government-based price fixing on wages and on materials, yeah. which went the way that price fixing almost always goes, which is horribly. But we it did result in some really interesting information we have. Yeah, so it gives on, us a lot of really good information, but it's not always useful information. So keeping in mind that this is like the top prices so you can't go higher than these prices but you can go lower right so it gives us for example the maximum wage you could pay silk weavers also of the over 1200 entries in this document there are two things tied for the most expensive thing one of them is an adult male lion which mm-hmm. you can imagine is very expensive. The other one was a single pound of purple dyed silk. That was that was finished. Was that the one that was spun or the one that was unspun? It was unspun. It was just unspun silk that still needed the labor to spin it. And didn't you, we do a calculation and find out that how long was it that it would take if you were going to be spinning that, that silk based off of the information here? We did do that and we'll put it in the show notes because we didn't put that information in front of us right now. Okay. Unless you just pulled it up in the um, book. I I have it. Yeah, okay, so here, the breakdown of the analysis is that the barrier of entry for the tools and skill set to carry out this work would be relatively negligible. A solid spindle would cost roughly 13% of the wages from spinning a single unica of purple silk, blah, blah, blah. However, it would take over 10 years for a single laborer to earn enough to purchase a single pound of silk. So 
I thought that that was pretty interesting. And that, that and that pound of purple dyed silk would have been a uh, hundred and fifty thousand denarii, which, if you consider that it's the same cost as a adult male lion that had to be imported from Africa, so there's a person who may be spinning this silk who there's no way they could afford basically the thing they're spinning. Exactly. So that scenario that I laid out in my dissertation that it would take over ten years for that person to make enough money to buy it that would never happen. What that implies is that you probably had someone else who was purchasing the materials mm-hmm. and then providing the materials for the person who was doing the labor. Right. So the last evidence section is the iconographic evidence section. And this this one ha part of the thing of this one is the kind of missing evidence in this section right yeah so there's not a lot of images of people spinning especially if you compare it to greek iconography you've got a bunch of women on greek vases spinning or sitting with wool baskets at their feet and we do have funerary iconography from the roman empire that represents people with textile tools and just to give credit, the uh, scholar Lena Larson Loven has done a lot of work with the iconography of woolwork in the Roman Empire. But so we have examples where, for example, you would have a textile merchant and on his funerary monument, there would be a picture of a sheep mm-hmm. or a picture of wool shears to indicate that that was this person's profession. We also have, and I think we just didn't mention this in the domestic chapter, we also have images where you have a housewife who is sitting there in a chair, which anytime you have someone sitting down in a chair in the ancient world means that they're pretty important. So sitting in a chair with a wool basket at her feet, or maybe a representation of a spindle and and distaff, but not actually spinning. We have one example where someone is holding a distaff, so we know that how these distaffs would have been held, but she's not actively spinning. So we have that. We have images like the Egal Monument, where we've got these kind of like more industrial images, and we have other smaller funerary monuments that show similar scenes of like shipping the finished cloth and displaying the cloth to either be inspected or to customers or things like that so those exist but they're kind of what's kind of being highlighted in this section is kind of what's missing right and and in so i guess we're getting to the conclusion of this particular chapter which i don't know if you mind but i'd like to if, do you mind if i read part of a paragraph in yeah here? go for it um so the the surrounding context for this is that in this chapter, you're spending a lot of time talking about, and you're not the only one, right? Academics in general spent a lot of time talking about, well, there's this missing space, right? So I really like this paragraph a lot. So I'm going to just read a portion of the paragraph. Uh, section 6.7, the solution to the mystery, women. Sometimes the whole that delineates the absence of evidence is itself the shape of the evidence. Economic historians may decry the absence of evidence for spinning and weaving for textile production. However, this is not truly the case. Archaeological evidence for these early stages of textile production exists in abundance in domestic contexts, just not in the centralized production centers that would fit the narrative of the commercial production. The most logical conclusion 
is that women still played an active role in textile production just from within their homes. Yeah. So that's the big breakthrough moment of my dissertation is that these two things probably weren't as clearly delineated as secondary source scholars often indicate. Mm -hmm. So there is another section of this book. And then I think in the part two of that, we're going to do this. We're going to get through the the final synthesis. We're going to get to the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And then... Notably, in some ways, this episode has not been as fossy as um, some other episodes have been, right? It's been yeah. very much so on your dissertation and the crafty side. But I think we're going to get into the, if you're looking for the fossy connection, there'll, that'll come up in two different ways in the next episode. One, about the parallels we can see mm -hmm. from here in other fields, including tech fields, right? Yeah. And the other one being actually releasing this thing and getting it out the door as a free cultural work, right? Yes, because this dissertation was released under a CC by SA license. Uh, yep, under CC by SA International. Um, great. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up this episode? Nope, I think we'll just continue on with discussion of the performative aspects of women in textile production in the Roman Empire, and then... All that stuff we just said. Yeah, you just didn't actually say what that third section was when you... Yeah, okay, I didn't say performance. I did not perform my role properly. That's okay. Okay, that was a joke. Puns. Performative. I know, I was considering telling you I could hand you a spindle, but... Alright, anyway, that's it. That's the end of this episode. Alright, bye everybody. Thanks, bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Chris Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Chris Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community in hash Foss and Crafts at irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash foss and crafts that's it for this week until next time stay free and stay crafty and okay. you should probably take off your necklace i should probably take off my necklace i have this very clinky necklace which is making a lot of noise and you probably heard it so christine's been standing sitting there holding her throat yeah i'm trying to trying to keep it from clinking too much so which gonna... by the way made me nervous that i was doing something wrong that you were like oh no no i wasn't it's just it's clinky so clinky